welcome to Public Service Podcasting, your inside look into the world of public service scholarship and practice. Oh, and yes, a quick warning, there will be spoilers. Hello, good evening. Welcome to Public Service Podcasting Does Line of Duty, or as I think we may end up calling the episode uh, Jesus and Mary and Joseph and the Wee Donkey. I shall let Ian deliver that line with the proper Lorna and Brio, as is required. So uh, this episode, um, we're going to have a look at, react to, I suppose, as the uh, young YouTubers uh, might say, to the last episode of Line of Duty, which aired this Sunday just gone, um, and have a think about how that relate to representations of public service. What can it teach us about public services? But first and foremost, we're all also fans, so this just felt like a really good thing to do. So um, with me, I've got my two regular co-hosts, Ian Elliott and Karen Bottom. Ian, do you want to say hi? Hello. Karen, do you want to say hi? Hello there. And we also have with us Dr. Joe Knowles. Joe, would you just like to maybe give uh, a brief bio, a little bit of your background and stuff and um, why you're here today? Hello, yes. Um, I was um, thrilled to be to come on um, as a guest and contribute to this podcast, first of all as a Line of Duty fan, but also as a um, researcher and teacher of um, television and popular fiction. So this is one of the courses I've just been teaching for my final year students on popular fiction and contemporary culture. Um, And I've been quite pleased to discuss Line of Duty on that. So I'm here to share some some thoughts from that perspective. Super. And you're a senior lecturer in media and cultural studies at Liverpool John Moores. Is that right? That's right, yeah. I mean, I knew that was right when I said it, to be honest. I probably didn't <laughs> ask you. Uh, so um, I tell you what, let's just dive right in with, um, oh, wow, that last episode, eh? What, did, uh, what were the various reactions? What did people think? Well, initially, I was really underwhelmed. And I think... Um, I was just expecting more action, more on the edge of the chair, more holding my breath. And for H to be perhaps the most underwhelming character in the programme as well was a bit of a shock. But then, I don't know, Having got, going back, watching it again and actually really thinking about it, I thought, actually, no, that, that makes sense. It feels a bit more realistic and it really does show the extent of the corruption and how things are actually working. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. I mean, I think initially I felt a bit lost at the end of it. I was kind of thinking, gosh, is that it? You kind of you see them go into a lift and go down the building and you're kind of expecting, you know, some sort of explosion or yeah. uh, some sort of, uh, you know, something to happen, you know, something unexpected. And it's just like they kind of, it, it, it drifts off. Um, and I think a lot of people have felt that. But actually, again, like Karen just said, having watched it again and and given it some thought, you know, I think I think that was actually quite deliberate. And mm. I think it's absolutely brilliant um, because these things quite often don't come to a nice clean a clear-cut ending and that's exactly what they've just portrayed in the end of the of the series it it, it isn't all nicely neatly wrapped up there's still a lot of unknowns there's still a lot of unanswered questions there's still a sense of well you know is H the the real you know kingpin or where there are other people you know we we can't really get a sense of who is in the most powerful position here and and what is going on but you know such is the way with 
so many issues in in public administration and in public management it's it's difficult to really get underneath the, the the surface level and i think that sense of disappointment perhaps you know maybe we're all feeling a little bit disappointed with some of our public services at the minute and Maybe maybe that is a way of, of reflecting that general sense of um, almost malaise in, in in what they've done with the TV series. I, th- I think that issue of whether there are any what we might call real life parallels, mm-hmm. I think we'll definitely come back to. Um, I mean, I think very much like you, Ian, um, I initially, as in right as it happened, felt slightly um, sort of misplaced, really. I wasn't quite sure. And, and I, I think, I guess, probably like, Karen, I was expecting, you know, um, urgent exit required or something. Um, and that, but actually, quite quickly, you kind of think, yeah, but this is how stuff happens. This is this is what it's like. There isn't always, you know, some kind of mastermind villain. Um, the, the thing it made me think is, um, and I don't know if your experiences, the three of you, were similar, but when I went to hand in the final copy of my PhD thesis, you have the, you know, three big things printed, and I went to what was the student support office. Office, and I said, uh, I've come to hand in my thesis. And she went, all right, okay. Um, so I sort of, kadump, they go down on the desk and I signed a piece of paper and um, and she walked away and I went, oh, is that, was that it? Um, and she came back and she said, sorry, did you want something else? And I, I said, well, I, I, n- no. A party, I, a fanfare. I, was, I said, I was slightly Streamers. surprised, you know. I thought there might be balloons or something. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, yeah, it's really weird. Loads of people say that. And I said, and yet I know no balloons. Um, so, I'm going to send you a balloon now, Russ. Thank you. Uh, you. see, I could always rely on you for a good present like that, Ian, as one of your <laughs> special powers. Um, but I think that sense of it was something momentous, but it also felt terribly, deliberately flat, mm. uh, very flattening, in fact. It's like it yeah. squashed the air out of you. Um, Joe, what did you think? I think I felt relieved, in fact, that we'd got through it, if you like, without losing any of our main mm. trio of characters that mm-hmm. we've become very invested yeah. in. So that was part of it for me, because there was lots of speculation, as I'm sure we'd all seen in the run up to the the very final episode about what possible dramatic endings there might be. There's been lots of speculation, not yet confirmed that this is the last ever series. Mm-hmm. And there was that feeling that, well, are we going to see one of them sacrificed to the cause and I was quite relieved that didn't happen I think for some of the reasons that you know we've been thinking about and will think about in the podcast today the idea that we want some reassurance that all of these actions aren't just for nothing yeah but I then went on to think actually I do find it quietly satisfying for the reasons that you've already talked about for that that sense of giving us something that we recognize as being part of the way that these things tend to map out and part of the the ongoing um, burden of public service this isn't going to come to a nice neat ending this isn't going to be conveniently tied up um, and laid out for us and that that lovely scene that we had where actually this is foreshadowed where they look at the name on the form revealing who the who the person is and Mm. say is that it but we've been under our nose we've been chasing shadows all along and that that, when when we see the rest of it unfold is really nicely done and then when we see this underwhelming character 
in front of us, I did find myself thinking, actually, it's kind of fitting that this is, as Hastings says, this is the mediocre white man failing upwards. Mm. And it's gone unnoticed because isn't that what always happens? It's not remarkable. So, and that, that unremarkability of Buckles has actually been what's allowed all of this to happen. Ted actually is the one who has built up H into the huge bogeyman, the the Mm. controller at the centre of everything. And actually we're looking at, I think as you said, in line with the whole idea of this kind of service, we're looking at something more banal, something more mundane that's been going on all along. Absolutely. It reminds me of somebody once said to me that if ever you think there's a conspiracy, uh, 99.9% of the time, it's actually incompetence, yeah. not conspiracy. Mm. And and, yeah. and that is exactly what they've brought across here by having actually a total buffoon as this, as, as the, as the, you know, the linchpin, the, the, the baddie. And, and, you know, there, there are so many, hints throughout the series about this sense of the damage that can be caused just through incompetence, Mm. just through having ineffectual public servants and for that I, I i mean i'm just going through this out there i think this is the best um portrayal of public services that has ever been made i think it's better in its portrayal of public service than than the west wing and i know that might sound like sacrilege to some people i think it's better you know it's it's better than parks and rec it's better than um yes minister i think honestly it is the best tv series because actually what it does is it it, especially in this last series, it, it presents the, the the real kind of nature of uh, you know so much of public administration that it is about process, it is about diligence, and you know the fact that service cuts can have a, a hugely devastating effect on everybody, and indeed that everybody is flawed. You know there isn't a kind of there isn't this isn't about uh, a really you know caricatured baddie against some sort of superhero uh, amazing goodie these are all flawed characters but ultimately the problem here that's occurred is through is through incompetence and through laziness and and being driven by greed and self-interest and that is the kind of crux of the story and i think for that, I absolutely take my hat off to to Jed and, and his writing and how he's put that across. I think absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I, th- I think I think you're spot on there. And I think, and if it was the last series, then you know, was it was Jed Mercurio's point in terms of actually leaving us with things to think about rather than waiting for the next series? Actually thinking about about the corruption, about how easy it is for these disasters to happen, about the real problems associated with the promoting of the wrong people for the wrong reasons, about what the difference is between being good and bad and the similarities quite often between those that are doing the bad stuff and those that are trying to catch them. Mm. And, you know, was the purpose of it is to leave all these kind of open-ended questions that actually just leave us pondering. Yes, I think, um, Karen, that's that idea of the similarity there Mm. is really interesting um, because for me, one of the the particular interests in it is thinking about it as part of the way that um, crime fiction has developed 
over the years and the idea that you know since um, detective fiction and crime fiction became popular and they re- they remain incredibly popular they've been able to offer this fantasy of order that gets talked about where it shows us that criminals are identified and caught and punished and therefore order prevails but that that is a lot more equivocal in practice than it might seem and it's become more so over the years where we've seen more and more tv series and other fictions where that similarity between Mm. the detectives and the criminals has really heightened and it's interesting for me to see how line of duty has really upped the ante on that with this idea that anyone could be bent and that you you can't tell and you're pulling your trust in the ac12 team to be able to find that out but yet at the same time it opens up the the idea that anyone can create this um presence of corruption and Mm -hmm. undermining of the ethos of public service by being someone who is willing to open themselves up to working for the wrong people and I think it also kind of asks the question or leaves the question with the public is, is, is it OK if they bend the rules a little bit if they hmm. get there in the end? Yeah. yeah. If we go back to season one, Tony Gates's downfall starts in the very first yeah. episode with accepting a free breakfast. Of course, yeah. yeah. Because he's, through having charged out of a cafe uh, to to save a woman who's being mugged. Now, you know, I think the one thing the episodes uh, have kind of told us is anyone can be corrupt, slash everyone is to a certain extent, as you said, Ian. I think they're all very Mm -hmm. flawed characters. Um, The the version of the thing that you initially talked about there, Ian, as well, I I always got uh, taught was um, in a choice between cock up or conspiracy it's always cock up Um, (laughs) i think it's very much the same ethos exactly Um, um, and i think in another tv series were were the quote bad guy to kind of get away you instantly think okay right next series whereas in this one i think mercurio's skill has been in leaving us not sure whether we would Mm. actually want to see another series or not or does the ending alone yeah because you're left with so many questions um who who else is corrupt who was actually there engineering buckles to go up the ladder what's going to happen to the characters that are in there is there somebody else as well as h Um, and i've got a big question in the sense of dcs carmichael because (laughs) <laughs> There's a lot to suggest that she's quite corrupt. Or is she really the kind of antithesis in some ways of um, Ted Hastings? And she really is by the book. So she says there's no yeah. institutional corruption because a report has determined there isn't. So there's just no point in going down that road. Yeah. And she just sees things as they are. And is she going to be the antithesis of that and actually go about things in a completely correct kind of way? And is that going to bring about the answers that, you know, is that going to bring the results? Or or is she pushing discussions away from corruption because she actually just wants to push it away because she's actually part of it? Yeah, my, my, my feeling on that is that Carmichael is um, very much of the kind of new public management mm. uh, kind of model of, mm. you know, and, and, and a kind of 
I, I, I compare her approach to Ted, and I mean Ted. Ted is clearly a very flawed character. Oh, yeah. You know, he throughout all of the series, he's he's been brought up for using, um, you know, sexist language. His um, attitudes towards ethnic minorities have been questioned in the past as well. Mm-hmm. Bearing in mind, you know, that the top three characters, you know, they're all white, um, and Steve has frequently been kind of given uh, leeway in a way that Kate hasn't. So there are these questions about Ted's own morality and his own uh, values, if you like. Um, and there is definitely a willingness with him, as, as, as although he says, you know, that you know we have to follow the letter of the law, um, you know, and, and he keeps banging on about that. He really doesn't do it himself, you know. No. So he's, he's, he's a little bit flawed there, whereas I think Carmichael is is much more of a kind of almost scientific management type approach, um, mm. you know, taking almost taking kind of values out of it, but also very much driven by efficiency and, you know, trying to, you know, deliver these cuts. I can imagine that she's, you know, looking at all the metrics and the KPIs mm. and, you know, she's, she, she's kind of going down that line. I mean, I can't. I can't imagine Ted doing a performance appraisal, for example. You know, I can't, I can't <laughs> imagine, you know, doing that. Um, so I think they're just very, very different. And again, I think that's that's part of the genius of of the writing that they've created these uh, very contrasting figures. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say that. Um, expect that Carmichael is in any way dodgy. I think she's just very different. No, I think when I first watched, it, I thought she was. But the more I thought about it, and I went back and watched it again, and I'd go with. Um, go with your analysis, Ian. But at the same time, she was set up and the camera kept going to her eyes as she looked away and looked. But actually, I think she was just irritated with the routes mm. that Ted Hastings wanted to go down. But it was set up to make you question it and think, mm, is she part of the, you know, she partly involved. She rose through the ranks really quickly as well. Why is that? Well, probably because of the way she goes about her job. She's much but, more clinical. She's much yes, more clinical. I mean, he's yes. throwing money at things. He's got, he's got everybody being, you know, under surveillance. He's got, you know, sending out you know armed officers to every single uh thing and you know mm. no expense spared and we need we need helicopters we need this we need that and she's coming in and you know i can imagine quite soon they'll be hot desking you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. think, you know. there was a nice little comment from her about oh there'll be no money left by the time i take over um, yeah. which was actually an unusual one that was more personal than some of the others because I think Carmichael's been a fantastic character in this Mm. series, beautifully played by Anna Maxwell Martin. But I think the beauty of that has been that she's so opaque and she's played that beautifully. So we have this really nice tension about, well, what is she actually thinking and who is she Mm. supporting? Um, And that's been part of the beauty of it. And she really deflected any attempt to draw that out in the the final episode other than looking very uncomfortable with the burden of Ted's final confession to her which could be for all sorts of reasons and that could be moral ones but it could also be in a way very reminiscent of series one um ah this is going to cause me a huge amount of paperwork now and admin and problems with those up the ranks from me Mm-hmm. So it's hard to know exactly what was going on there. And I think that was the that was the, the beauty of it, really. I think Carmichael, for me, is kind of nakedly careerist and ambitious. So I, do I think that she is criminally corrupt? 
probably not, I think, on the balance of things. Um, what she has done very clearly, and I'm sure we've all seen this in our own professional lives, is she's stitched herself to, you know, the flag of, uh, of um, a senior officer and that kind of classic patronage role. You know, mm. she is one of the Osborne's um, top people being put into kind of key roles. Um, and we see in, in um, the previous season when she gets rid of a DS who's made the mistake with the warrant for Hastings Room, just, you know, mm. with the same kind of cold, casual, mm. clinical, you know, absolute sort of vaguely psychotic looking like, you know, or sociopathic, I should say. It's a, yeah, okay, you'll be leaving now. Um, but with like no difference in this kind of change of tone of her voice, she's, she's been, uh, as as I think we've all said, a fantastic character, one mm. that we've loved to hate because she's 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 just, she's horrible. Yes, <laughs> she really is. She really is. But she's, she's done that with actually very little being given away. Um, mm. And she's, she's the antithesis really of that old stereotype of the over-emotional woman at work, which is lovely. Yes. Ted, Ted is the emotional one, which is rather yes. nice, actually. Yeah. And actually, is, is Carmichael really that terrible? I'm, go, I'm going to kind of, you know, kind of stick Ooh. my neck out here. But <laughs> is she that terrible? Or, or is she just looking, you know, she's coming into uh, AC12, she's, you know, having to deal with this restructure and to deliver, you know, huge efficiency savings. She's in that role. And I think, you know, is she just trying to do her job? Is she just focused on, right, this is the task I've got in front of me. I'm just going to, you know, deliver this. I'm going to do it. And actually might AC12, you know, in maybe not in all respects, but in some respects be better as a result of what she does. I'll throw that out there. Oh, I'm not sure I buy that. And this is good because we <laughs> all think the same thing. Um, yeah. I'd have a sneaky feeling she's the one who's who said to the chief constable, listen, um, give me AC12 as well as, is she AC4 or 3? AC3, I think Give me 12 as well as 3 and I'll I'll make loads of savings and I'll get rid of some of the people who've been a bit of a you know, thorn in your side, don't you worry. Uh, I'll see you right, sir, and you'll see me right, won't you? And that's that, as I said, that classic kind of patronage, which has has a positive side to it in many ways. I, I myself, you know, was taken under the wing of a, of a senior officer, my first manager, who, you know, I made him look good and then he looked after me and we both moved up the organisation. That... That then, on a professional and personal level, went quite sour, and you know we we went our separate ways. So I suppose maybe and maybe I'm just drawing that connection to it and, and reading that into it. I mean that's the beauty of Carmichael's, sorry, Maxwell Martin's performance mm. is mm. you can very easily read all of those things or any of those things. Mm. Yes, and if we get another series, we may see some more of that, and I think it would be quite satisfying if that was made to see how they then brought Carmichael into the position to be making some of the moral judgments we've seen other characters make. I think that would be fascinating because the the, the beauty of the character, as I said, has been her holding back on that and being able to employ this, as you've talked about it, this managerialism of saying this is about taking the line set out for me by the person at the top of the organisation. And she's been very committed to that it would be fascinating to see what happened if she were presented with a dilemma that challenged her thinking and her values in the way that we've seen it done with the other characters so maybe we will be lucky and get that who knows oh do hope so 
Mm. In my head, I'm just hearing her say alleged corruption. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been really interesting actually to see over the course of a number of series, um, the female character's line of duty has given us because for me, I think they've had... Um, more agency than they do in many other crime series. Mm -hmm. They've been able to do a lot more, including having the freedom to be annoying and irritating and uh, characters that we react to very strongly, as lots of people have with Carmichael, Mm -hmm. as well as having lots of admirable qualities. So we've had these um, superb characters like um, Lindsay Denton, like Roz Huntley, um, just extraordinary characters who... um, had this screen presence, had this fascination as ambivalent characters, very, very capable officers, extraordinarily so. But then for me, um, hamstrung by some of the gendered social expectations that even though they've been very successful as women in the force, have still um, surrounded them. So the problem that we saw with Denton ultimately coming down to her mum in a care home and those kind of expectations around the daughter who needed to be able to to take care of that and Huntley having taken that career break and then Mm. desperately wanting to be taken seriously and, and to show that she could cut it and solve the case and pushing that a little bit too far even though she was able to do all sorts of other admirable things at the same time Um, and that's even before we get to Kate so I think that's been a real pleasure in the watching of it for me. Absolutely, Kate has been been the the absolutely outstanding um, character for the whole thing. But the other person I would I would highlight as being a fantastic character is the person who has solved the whole thing, which is <laughs> Chloe Bishop, who you know, yeah. just just comes into the room and is like, "Okay, here you are, you three. I've solved the case you've been working on for the last nine years. Thank you very much." And they yeah. go, "Oh, brilliant, great job!" And they take all the credit. And it's like, "Hang on a minute, you know, what about Chloe here? You know, just when she gets." a promotion yeah <laughs> just invited to the pub yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. she didn't even get get to go, go and have a drink with the others it's unbelievable. No. Chloe. yeah <laughs> um but i think as well with carmichael i mean i think you know you, you've touched on something there which is about how we expect um different genders to perform mm-hmm. different roles and mm-hmm. i think again some of the judgment of carmichael I think has been overly harsh because she's not being that maternal, you know, mm. caring, uh, emotive type leader. You know, she is working in a very uh, stern way, in a very uh, clinical way. And I think some of the criticism that she's faced is is a consequence of that, that somehow we expect something different. Um, and, and, and again, you know, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to hang on to this idea that she's she's not that bad. She's, she's just misunderstood. <laughs> I think there's a lot more we could get out of her yet, certainly. So I'd be yeah. I'd be interested to see that. And she's got this incredibly strong reaction, and that actually is what is a marker of a success in a drama like this. You want to be able to react to characters strongly, and it's mm-hmm. something that we saw earlier with the likes of Denton and Huntley, and characters like Doc Cotton as well. So. Mm. That, that brings out people's you know, really strong responses to what's going on. Um, which is which is interesting. Perhaps with Buckles as the you know the the jester, the comedy figure, yeah. um, mm. largely there for us to just you know laugh at for being a bit rubbish and a bit brummy. I'll put that. <laughs> <up>. <laughs> I 
<laughs> I, I resemble that remark. One of the reviews that I read said this demonstrates all of our prejudice against the Brummie accents. Um, and that was from um, Louisa Mella's review of it on Den of Geek. Yeah. And I thought, I actually think you're onto something there. Yeah. It's a, Well, it so. couldn't possibly be him. <laughs> well, I, I, I would also, uh, you know, not, not, not defend him entirely, because obviously he is, you know, completely lazy and, and incompetent. But I think as well, Ian Buckles is somebody who's misunderstood to an extent, because, you know, he, I think he's just in the wrong job. I think he's he's just motivated in a way by different things. You know, he wants the fast cars, he wants the fancy lifestyle. He's he's driven by self-interest and the idea that somebody with that sort of motivation should be in a public service job it's just the wrong fit i think if he was if he was working for dfs he would be he would be you know terrific he would be their top salesperson and he would be getting on he would be getting on an absolute storm it's just it's just in the wrong it's is the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time um and actually you know again one of the things that i think the series has highlighted really well is ideas of public service motivation and mm. why certain people do certain jobs and why per- certain people um go into certain professions and some of the some of the consequences of that around the self-sacrifice around the stress that's caused around breakups to relationships and you know problems within their private lives so i think again it, it it's looking at the tv series from the perspective of motivation theory is also really interesting and and again i think they've done a fantastic job of highlighting some of those themes and and for that i think buckles is just he's just in the wrong job he's just just not meant to be a police officer really and they kind of show how kind of crime pays so the people you know even if they're bending the rules and doing the wrong thing you know that they've got their personal problems i can remember it was one series when kate ended up living in the car when she'd um, separated yeah. from her husband mm-hmm. Um, then um, and then, then Ted Hastings spent a lot of time in a horrible hotel, and he didn't have a penny to his name practically. And then, if you put that against the people, you know, show, showing that crime pays because they're living in nice houses or they're living abroad in Spain, and again, it's that kind of juxtaposition of uh, what pays and what doesn't. Yes, absolutely, because Buckles is very pragmatic about it, mm. and when we see those messages from him about the Eastfield Depot, and I've got to know whether it's worth it. It's very much a, a calculation for him about yeah, well, these things were worth Business more. So complete, mm. yeah. complete absence of, as you said, Ian, that public service ethos. Um, and it's it's interesting to see. I started watching the very first episode again from season one. And mm. that is very prominent, in fact, when we see Steve and Kate, who both look ridiculously young now in that first episode, <laughs> by the way. They look as though they've just done A-levels. Um, and we see with both of them the idea that they want to do a worthwhile police job. Now, yeah. interestingly, AC12 is not seen as a particularly worthwhile police job. It's not presented in mm. that, that opening series as proper police work it's seen as backroom you're not after you're not going after the real villains and that's something we saw again in this series with kate with her move away from ac12 is saying well i wanted to go and catch proper villains and that for me echoed in a way some of the 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 debates that have gone on often in the media over the years about um staff in public services and the idea that you have backroom pen pushers who are derided in relation to 
the frontline workers who are out there doing the really important work when actually the whole system is much more interdependent than that and that never really gets recognized but that dichotomy is there right at the beginning of line of duty it says well how do we do a worthwhile police job and part of the what's going on in that first episode is about the idea that Steve is actually, I think Hastings says to him, you're a born anti-corruption mm. officer and that mm. that is a calling all in its its own right, really. Mm. The idea yeah. that you're ensuring integrity in the way that we've heard so much about in this yeah. recent series, the, in, the integrity, the accountability are these terms that keep being repeated for us. Yeah, and it is it's 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 bureaucratic. It is it's it's paper based. It is you know a bit dull perhaps. It is about process. It's all of these things. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the focus on the way that they've just chosen to focus on the anti-corruption unit specifically within policing again is a great way to highlight these aspects of public administration that you know they're not. In that sense, frontline policing, they are, um, yeah, they, and and it, it draws out a lot of those a lot of those themes. And and you're you're absolutely right. Right from the first first episode, those, those things come to the fore. Um, and again, absolutely brilliant. And as we said just now, Chloe, in fact, who is the the main mover in solving lots of this, does through what we could call maybe bureaucratic methods. She's diligently yeah. checking yeah. the files, finding the right information. She solves it by carefully going through the paperwork. While um, everyone else so, is running around outside, yeah. Absolutely, yes. yeah. Having shootouts. Mm-hmm. That's where the real work's happening. What Buckles himself would have said, basic coppering. Mm. Yes, <laughs> one of the things I read and we'll come back to Chloe I'm sure because she's just been awesome but one of the things I found interesting in that discussion about Buckles was that he himself says basically well you know the people above me kind of kept being locked up or dying and so it just I ended up doing their stuff yeah Um, yeah and he's sort of he he isn't the the criminal mastermind he hasn't (laughs) even you know, maximised, you know, this is a long-term plan in the, in the way that, say, Ryan Pilkington was groomed, or Davidson was groomed to be, you know, an inside asset. He's just had an opportunity and then thought, yeah, go yeah. on then. Yeah. Um, it's almost the, the lackadaisical nature. I, I kind of thought you should be a bit more proud of your achievements. I mean, you get a bit of that with the, I've made mugs of all of you. Yeah. My very favourite line, by the way, sorry, I said, uh, I was in one, it might have been the Guardian review, and it said, uh, Hastings said, no one makes mugs of AC12. And then the person wrote, yeah, he's clearly not been on Etsy. (laughs) (laughs) I would quite like a mug. I may need to get one now. I believe they've been, yes, selling quite well today. There have been a lot of great lines. Uh, One of the other ones, um, when Steve and Kate were in the pub together, something that really struck me was, I think it was Kate that said, you only appreciate what you've lost when it's gone Mm. and I felt as though that again was a real message of this particular series that you have these systems in place to ensure that there is integrity you know you have this this level of scrutiny of police work and what's happening is that is being all disbanded that is being cut back and you only really appreciate you know public nobody really you know nobody's like a a kind of flag flying you know public administrator uh nobody nobody really appreciates these things nobody really appreciates the role that public administration 
people do until it's gone it's until gone, it's yeah. like oh well what happened to that guy who was you know looking after the the you know register of xyz oh well you know cutbacks you know they're gone now oh you know and and suddenly suddenly it becomes a problem and that again i think is a real theme of this series there was a brilliant quote there's so many quotes from ted hastings in in that last episode but there was one i wrote down which was none of this could have happened without the willful blindness of those in power and those in power mm. should be held to account devastates me that we've stopped standing up for accountability that we've stopped caring about truth and integrity because it is these institutional failures that enable the likes of Ian Buckles to be corrupt. So mm. it's not it's not that Ian Buckles is a mastermind, it's a systematic failure because the the systems, the bureaucratic systems have all been disbanded, they've all been wiped out as being inefficient. And I think they make that point very clearly as an excellent point, Ian. But when it, it's Buckles isn't a mastermind, you don't need to be a mastermind to take advantage because the system has this built into it. It's it's as I've seen people use priced in, um, and and therefore Buckles, who who I think probably is reasonably incompetent at the job of coppering as he would put it, mm. but seems quite good at, you know, keeping out of the firing line because as we've seen with lots of the other people who've been um, participating um, in uh, sinister activities with the OCG, um, you know, they often end up dead or missing mm. limbs and stuff. You know, it's quite, he's avoided all of that stuff, which is incredible. Yeah. Yes, he's succeeded through, as we said, failing upwards in a way that we we see happen quite a lot of the time and what we could probably see now if we looked back carefully for it I think is the idea that he's managed to trade on the activity um, carried out for him by more junior members of staff and then has conveniently aligned himself with people higher up the chain of command and just Mm. sailed through on that basis so a lot of the the politics that we see represented in Line of Duty over the various series is that expediency of just fitting in with what the higher ranks want you to yeah. do. We've seen it with the chief constables and the people working directly from them. So it's it's easy to imagine that Buckles has just shaped himself to fit that requirement quite unobtrusively. And it's, it's served him very well. It's that tendency that we can maybe see if we want to read her unsympathetically in Carmichael, but we may yeah. not do, depending on what, what comes along for mm. her. But Buckles has managed to to make the most of that and simply sit there and sign his name on the right piece of paper when it comes along, switch the duty rotor around so that the mm. right or wrong people are in the place they need to be at a particular time. What was the phrase he used about, I just pass things along? Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's how he's <laughs> characterised it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> what can you say to that? <laughs> but what was his downfall in the end mm. that was yes absolutely that was amazing i absolutely loved that it was the spelling of definitely mm. i mean you know let's yes. stand up for good spelling it's yeah. like with two l's and two t's by the way let's uh, stand <laughs> up for you know good spelling and proper proper process mm. absolutely that was i great. did like the the tweet i saw from someone actually i think it was tim shipman who said is anyone else now really paranoid that they've been spelling definitely wrong all this time because <laughs> <laughs> we all have those words don't we where it comes 
up. And that was clearly one for, for Buckles. I do love the idea that it's forensic linguistics that could catch you out. Yes. Uh, yeah. It was the bit when they were in the interrogation and they said, mm. oh, yeah, we've spotted, you know, the misspelling of definitely. And he looks up at the screen all shocked, like, what? It's, yeah, it's what? spelled wrong? <laughs> <laughs> and he's got no idea. Was, I never knew. Brilliant acting. Absolutely brilliant yeah. acting. Yeah. Face was. Think, that's how you spell it. I think his, his performance has not got enough credit, actually. Yes. Yeah. Certainly looking at it now, he's he's done a very good job of playing that role in both senses, clearly. Yes. Um, and I do like that. Um, it gave us a very different interview scene, I suppose, because this is one of the lovely things, again, I think about the series, that it's had as its um, set pieces these protracted interviews. And I'm sure I remember this from quite early reviews um, in previous series where reviewers were saying, who would ever have thought that a 20-minute interview scene could be as compelling as this? Mm. And it's it's really, and that, that whole focus on the process, the long beep at the start of the recording, the, the rituals that are gone through in that those police procedures um, has been made dramatically um, the centre of what, what goes on. And I noticed that was what a lot of people picked up as their disappointment in the final interview, that it wasn't one of those highly dramatic set pieces it was actually much flatter than that in the way that you were saying ian and karen at the start really but then that that's very much of a piece as we were saying i think with this whole ending that it's well actually it's much more down to earth and that in its own way is actually arguably much more devastating as you said yeah, ian. yeah. the whole system is at fault it's not some criminal mastermind yeah. Um, that gives us something more devastating to work with, perhaps, than anything else could have been, mm. but maybe not quite as dramatically satisfying for some audience members, for sure. Mm. I think that that's a really good point about, you know, we talked about this, about the system, about bureaucracy, about what are the engines, I suppose, that drive this element of public service. Um, Ian, you were talking about this notion of um, it being, you know, it being a calling and, and I've, I've heard police officers talk about it in those terms that you know being a careerist that was the word I used about Carmichael being being driven by a career in quotes hmm. is a bad thing yeah because actually police is a calling it's public service it's a duty you know it's Perry and Wise's public service motivation hmm. and then within AC12 you know you've got this you've got what is actually an incredibly um well-founded principle, you know, we can go back to quis custodiet ipsos custodes, if I can remember my A-level Latin, who guards the guards themselves. Well, that's fundamentally for me, I think, you know, uh, uh, at the heart of this, it's the, do we hold the people who guard the guards to a higher standard than the guards? And, Mm. you know, for me, Hastings' final kind of act of catharsis of saying to Carmichael, look, I've done this bad thing. You know, is is a classic one of him holding himself to that standard, and we haven't seen that many examples of it in the you know quote regular police forces. I don't I don't know what you guys think about that. Yeah, I mean it's it's um, I think you see you see public service motivation. You also see the dark side of public service motivation as well. And yeah. you know, I think about uh, Ted obviously and what he's been through, but. Steve in particular who uh, particularly at the beginning of series 6 just is just broken he's just an absolute mess mm. he's popping pills left right and centre he's you know 
down in a bottle of wine every night just to try and get through the day. And even when he's referred to occupational health, he's still saying, no, I need to get back on the job. I'm working on this really important case. And he's just, he's just willing to do whatever it takes for the job. And at some point, you just wait, you know, turn into him and say, look, it is just a job, Steve. You know, give, give yourself a break here. You know, it's not worth killing yourself over. And I think you can look, if you look at um, the other characters as well, they've kind of, they've, they've got not really got any outside life. Kate doesn't really seem to. Last time we saw Teddy was living in a hotel and he didn't seem to have anybody to talk to apart from his ex-wife now and again. And it, 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 so it just speaks to the fact that um, it can be so all-consuming. Yeah. Yes, I think Steve says that. Does At one, at one point in this series, he, he says something like, um, if they take me off the job, I've got nothing else. Mm. And for does, all yeah. those characters, we've seen it come down to that, that they're, they're clinging to the role that they play in AC12 because that, that is what gives them meaning. I think Kate talked in her interview with the therapist. Um, it's really nice, actually, to see that brought in and the idea that there needs to be this time for people to decompress and talk mm. about their their traumatic experiences. But in that, she said, oh, I've got my son and he keeps me going. But that's a rare moment outside the idea that the job is what keeps them going, that it, it is, as you said, that calling that they they see but it's also very isolated but it also it speaks to the fact that because the job is also they it just doesn't seem possible to have a work-life balance and so Mm. whether they made a conscious choice for it to be all-consuming and take over their lives or it was just because they had to to, in order to get the job done the end result is exactly the same it is all they've got i think with steve he he's burned isn't he from the first series by the injustice of standing up for the right thing for the death of an innocent man and refusing to go along with what is an institutional cover-up so you know that to use hastings metaphor i think lit the fire um, and that fire's never gone out with steve kate i think has a slightly different motivation and you see that in her lack of um, absolute certainty that she should stay in AC12 in that she's got this, well, I might want to go back to doing, quote, you know, proper policing, where she she sees the sort of the seductiveness of, of the way that that is delivered. But yeah, Steve is, you know, a mini Hastings, you know, definitely. Mm-hmm. I think you can see those, those characteristics. And Steve's weaknesses, his foibles are, other than maybe with Denton, uh, you know, the other ones that his kind of relationship have been how he spends his little social life um, rather than making him do a bad job at work. Um, so, yeah, I think it is, whereas, you know, Kate's affair with Richard Akers is is right in the middle of, of you know, what's going on. Very, very different. Yeah, I think Kate... Um... Her, her decision to leave, I think, was probably based as much by seeing how Steve was constantly being, you know, seen as a favourite almost by Hastings and given preferential treatment. And I think there was a, a series, I think it was Ross Huntley said to Kate, you know, look around you, how many women ever get promoted within AC12? You know, you're, you're never going to get promoted here um, because Although of, then she does. And she actually gets to be inspector. Yeah, yeah. But 
I think there's always been that shadow over Ted about his views towards women and I think that was partly the reason why Kate was maybe thinking actually I need to go off and, and do something else for a while just to and also because of what Ted had been seen to do and the wrongdoing that he'd been seen to do and I think she felt really genuinely disappointed in in him from from series five. I, I think Kate was um, addicted to the kind of undercover elements of it of the you know worming away in somewhere to uh, meeting in the alleyways mm. late at night stuff to pass on information which I'm pretty sure a phone call probably could have done it just as well but it doesn't have quite the same drama I guess but yeah they I mean I don't think Kate's I didn't mean that Kate's story in AC2 was any less kind of strong she just she she doesn't have that sort of single motivation perhaps that Steve does Um, Is this a good point to talk about Chloe, I want just to bring her in. And I I got a paper in the Australian Journal of Public Admin, which I shan't give you the title and the dates and things, otherwise it looks like a horrendous self-promotion. But in that, it was part of my research looking at cuts within local government. Um, And I observed what I I call this, this loss of the competent middle core of professional staff. So where cuts had been made, what had been hollowed out was this kind of first level supervisor up to, you know, below head of a section, these kind of really competent middle professionals who are the ones who actually made all the sort of difficult work get done. Um, and what was happening in, in English local government at, at the time was that, you know, they were being replaced with apprentices and trainees and people, mm. you know, fresh out rather than a social worker with, you know, five years experience. Chloe, for me, is that highly, highly competent um, person. Okay, she's relatively junior rank-wise, but she's junior within uh, an elite unit, uh, if we could call it that. So, yeah, she she's very much is the unsung hero. And why she doesn't get a beer, you know, or a glass of wine or whatever, at the end, I think that's the bit I found most annoying. Mm. <laughs> but what do we think of Chloe and Chloe's impact? I think for this mm. series, it's brought back that importance of the work outside some of the more dramatic, as we've said, running around confronting people across interview tables. Chloe has been part of interviews. We've seen her do some of that, but not taken the lead. But we have seen this um, diligent, investigative process going on, driven by Chloe. So for me, it feels a bit like shoring up the role of the team more broadly. And you need these different characters, just as you need staff in different roles Mm. and with different strengths and characteristics to be able to make all this this work because in in tv drama terms in narrative terms the focus is often centrally on the maverick character who breaks the rules and gets things done but of course what what doesn't get said about that is that if everyone worked like that nothing would ever happen so yes yeah so we do need the people who fill in the paperwork correctly and check through the files Mm. and so on and but i mean i'm i'm conscious that i'm making chloe sound very boring in saying that and i i hope we'll get to see her flourish as an investigator um, and we've we've seen that with some other characters but then sometimes they veer off in different directions it's a really good point i i remember um a manager of mine when i was having a conversation about you know the management team that i was on and there was some friction between a few of us and i was just sort of saying look you know how, how are we going to get through some of this and he said well you know look this is the thing russ you know i've hired a load of people stars with big egos and you know you're like star strikers on a football pitch and i said that's great but that doesn't make a good team <laughs> that makes a load of people 
who want to like fire off in random directions and go kind of their own ways. Whereas I think what you've highlighted for me there, Joe, is that Chloe actually, she is one of the mechanisms through which the relationship between Steve and Kate is kind of facilitated in that mm. she takes over some of that stuff and takes some of that burden and, and delivers things for them that allows them to kind of go and do, you know, more of their I'll drive type stuff. So I think mm. she's been, yeah, overlooked, not overlooked as a character because I think we're directly looking at her now, but a fantastic character. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the other three are going off and doing different things things but equally you know steve's driving up and down to liverpool all the time and you know i mean they're i'm not sure how much they're kind of invested in in the actual job at times you know this and steve constantly has this way of hanging out at the bottom of a of a bridge to like stretch his back and stuff and you're like (laughs) why are you stopping at the bottom of a bridge to to stretch your back it just doesn't make any sense but yeah i mean she's clearly the the one who's really driving forward a lot of the hard work a lot of the graft that's gone into building up the case and it's almost it's almost a shame that you don't see her develop a little bit more i guess if there was going to be another series it would be really good to see chloe's character develop and do other things as well and be more have more dialogue and have more scenes and Mm -hmm. just be more involved generally i think there was a there was a a really powerful moment where she had the scene talking through the, the Lawrence Christopher case, which was very quickly recognised as this amalgamation of two real-life cases where institutionalised racism played a central role. And I, I can see how Chloe's presence actually underlines the importance of diversity in a number of ways in the representational sense and in terms of reminding us of that thread of issues for the police in dealing with cases like this because there's the the, yeah. the part where she's talked through the background to the cases um, really for the benefit of the viewers as much as anything else mm. and then Steve says I'm sorry you had to dig all that up I hope it hasn't affected you and she said how could it not affect me yeah. and it's that that idea that actually she's not only this actually brilliant investigator who efficiently has managed to solve all these things but she's been confronted during that process with this really hurtful evidence of how she is regarded in this way as a as a lesser person um, and that was quite a powerful moment I think there that worked very nicely for her as a, a moment where she could step forward um, and make that point for us for the audience. Yeah, that was a brilliant scene. I do remember that. And the other the other character who we haven't mentioned as well is Lomax, who a lot mm. of people had a lot of conspiracies about. I still don't know what to make of him. Very sketchy, or is he just quietly getting on and doing the job? Yeah, really. Uh, the jury's out for me. Yeah. Well, we, we didn't get to find out who forged those signatures for him and Kate on the, the form approving Joe Davidson's um, yeah. dangerous trip in the van. So we we don't know whether he played a role in that or whether, like Kate, his signature was forged. That's one of the nice little openings they've left for us that we, we may get to see more of. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. It does get to a point where you start kind of questioning everybody. <laughs> you kind of yeah. start thinking everybody's guilty. Um, and, and again, I, I yeah. think that's quite a clever trick that they've played through the series that they have generated this 
huge number of theories and huge kind of noise around the series and in a way that almost reflects this sense that because there's so much confusion because there's so many complexities that you never really know what's going on that it becomes almost impossible to believe anything and there's there's issues there about uh, obviously who's guilty but there's also issues about trust who can you trust mm-hmm. if if everybody is tainted then ultimately can anyone be trusted and uh, if I stretch this analogy a little bit further uh, how much can we trust any of our public services when you know they've there's all this corruption going on where we see that there's institutionalized corruption and you see the you know the various miscarriages of justice that have taken place that they are investigating how do you actually regain any sense of trust when so much of it has been lost through what has been uncovered in the series and if we if it's not individuals in which we can trust then it surely it should be you know the rules the system but we're also at the same time are saying but what happens when systemically things are inefficient not working corrupted even if you know not quite corrupt um, and you know that's very much this accusation of, of institutional racism institutional you know sexism those sorts of things that contemporary public services and politicians seem very keen to deny just as much as uh, the fictional ones in line of duty. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. there's a scene where um, Hastings, uh, when, when Hastings is told that he has to take early retirement, just before he's told that he says, I'm, I'm attempting to uphold standards in public office. Public trust can only be maintained where wrongdoing is held to account. And straight away, the PCC, um, I think his name's Ron Sundwani, comes in and says, my God, you must have been living in a different country the last few years it's one of a number of zingers isn't it that that directly speaks to um contemporary political events that we're seeing and i think in for some of those you know have been around since time immemorial but there are a number that that are quite acute in terms of political observations so if we, if we move, take a step then perhaps beyond how public services are managed, what, what is it telling us about how public services are governed? It, it feels as though we have been given predominantly a very cynical view of why the people at the top of the institutional tree are there and what they are in it for. So it doesn't, I think for me, encourage faith in the idea that that governance is something that we can we can have our trust in everyone at the top seems pretty self-serving i guess you don't really see a lot of the people who are higher up you don't really get the chance to really understand what their motives are and obviously at the top of all of this there's a political process but we never really see the politicians or people in at that level of power but there is this sense that the whole system is tainted with corruption or incompetence and you know who can we trust who is really standing up for integrity and accountability there's a sense that you know th- there are hidden figures still who are still driving things for their own ends instead of as Ted and Steve and Kate would see it instead of in the public interest I think 
think um, as well, what it shows is it possibly that there will indicates that there is a hollowing out of politics that we kind of read about anyway. And when you actually kind of get to the top, there's not very much difference between the chief police constable and the directly elected mayor, because whenever we see them talking, it's about strategies and damage limitation. And they've got a lawyer in the room with them and they're talking about how to manage things. So we don't actually see any politics. And, you know, is that deliberate that we don't really see much politics is because politics there's a commentary on the fact that politics doesn't really exist anymore and it's all about management. We get an explicit presentation of that from the chief constable with his, you know, faceless bureaucrats and I yeah. think we all know what face that, that bureaucrat is wearing it's the PCC. You know, the only other real points at which I think politicians come in is with um, the paedophile council uh, councillor Dale Roach. So, you know, there is this sense, I think, that politics is a kind of venal corrupt force. And as you said, it's kind of hinted at. And I suppose for me, it's this AC12 and Hastings are all about following the rules to the letter of the law, but we're not really clear what to do if the letter of the law needs changing. Yeah. Yes, I don't think that's really adequately dealt with with any of what we see in terms of Ted's evocations of the letter of the law. That sense of, well, is that still fit for purpose? isn't really something that we we get to to see questioned or looked at by those higher up yeah because actually ted is beaten up with the letter of the law by denton by others you know in some of those interviews that you know that pivot 180 degrees and and where he ends upon the firing line uh, of some of those things yeah and we see the the very very last note in the very downbeat fashion that it, it finished was that the process, the letter of the law, may actually be what gets Buckles off the hook, and we'll see the whole shabby situation continue without you know exposing what's been going on. So, the letter of the law seems to to work against the opening up to sunlight that people might have hoped to see from it. Yeah, this kind of sense of, um, yes, sunlight is the best disinfectant is a phrase that uh, that we've heard. So I think that's been, that's been a really, really good canter through. I think um, I had in my head, uh, not a concern, but a pondering whether this would be a shorter episode. Uh, and I can clearly see it's not. Um, and I think we could probably keep going on a number of the aspects. And I do think this sense of trying to unpick what... Um, some contemporary or maybe even some older um, media texts as they're, I suppose they might go called you know films and books and things like that what they say about public service and what we can learn about public service from them I think is is a really interesting idea so you know maybe mm. we should never think about are there other texts are there other films or books or TV series uh, you know I know we we've had a bit of a chat about some of them I think this would be a really interesting thing to kind of pick up on as a regular basis what do people think Ian yeah I was I was actually just going to ask ask if, if anyone has any thoughts on other TV series that present public services uh, in a way that is useful from a kind of teaching perspective. I know that um, 
Erin Borey, for example, has written quite a lot about using Parks and Rec in teaching. But does anyone have any other suggestions of TV series or films, perhaps, that are particularly useful for this? Karen, any um, thoughts? Yeah, well, my all-time favourite series, um, The Wire, oh, yes. is oh, yes. um, just fantastic. But irrespective of my opinion about that, I did write it down, but it's escaped me now. But there's an article, um, an article being written about The Wire and public service leadership. Yeah, I think Here I... Here we are, yeah, Cherie Gaynor in JPAE. Yeah. And it's uh, about culturally competent leaders, for example. And there's, I think there's an article that's... Oh, there's, there's a couple of other um, articles that have been written. So it's, it's not a massive literature, but it's definitely something that's growing. Mm. Having said that, I think that in a, from a teaching perspective, got got to think about the kind of cultural competence of um, the issue and what's being taught and who's actually in the classroom as well. So it's, it's kind of quite a... It's, it's a thorny issue in terms of how you might teach these appropriately and make assumptions about who's watched them and who's familiar with the kind of public mm. service that you're watching. But, um, but yeah, I think it's a really interesting uh, really interesting method to pursue and to think about. I'd be really interested in having a conversation about it. Yeah. Definitely. And perhaps there might be people out there listening. No, uh, there might be people out there listening <laughs> who, who might have ideas about things that, that, um, that would be good for us to kind of discuss. And I, I think... This is, yeah, something that we could really, we could do. And you can see public service in everything from, you know, Postman Pat to oh, Parks you can, Pat yeah. to, you know, what was that Brad Pitt one of 12 Monkeys? That's a, you know, there's, mm. there's all sorts of things I think we could look for. And it's, it's this sense, as you said, about what they tell us about it and how we could use them. And I think teaching is a really great um, angle for us to think about with this. I mean, fundamentally, Joe, that I guess that's like a massive part of your core discipline, isn't it? Yes, very much much so and I'm what I've just been thinking about as you were talking that through was about um, some of the problems that we encounter when studying um, the media and media texts is getting past the idea of that that separation between well this is a representation of something and how does that compare to the reality and there will always be differences so it doesn't perhaps help that much to say well these things aren't always the same as they are in, in real life and that can be where the discussion kind of ends. But there has been over the years some really interesting research done with audiences that have um, that research has uncovered the idea that what audiences do with texts like this is that it gives them a way of thinking about how they handle situations and how they formulate their own values and ideas in response to what they see on screen so they can discuss the kind of scenarios that come up in a TV show in relation to thinking, well, that person didn't handle that what I would do. If I were in that position, if I had the difficult boss, if I had the corrupt co-worker, this is what I would do and this is how I would handle it. And an audience research has been able to bring some of that out. So those kinds of discussions about how characters like Steve, Kate, Ted, can get people thinking about those ideas of values at work and in public services and how particular scenarios might be handled might be one interesting way to pursue it as well, to use them as starting points for that kind of discussion about what people would do. I bet there are people out there who would have series that they would love to hear um, discussed as well. So The Wire, I think, would be a great one to do in this respect. But it would be interesting to hear about other 
suggestions that people might have. So any um, public service podcasting listeners out there who want to send in suggestions, I'm sure they'd be very well received. Absolutely. Yep. Send us an email um, at info at publicservicepodcasting.com or uh, tweet us at publicservepod. Um, we'd be really happy to get those. And I mean, I suppose um, for me, I think The Wire probably made me more want to be a Baltimore drug dealer than Line <laughs> of Duty made me want to be in AC12, as much as both I think are fascinating. Uh, not that I intend to embark on a career dealing drugs. I'll just, I'll just oh, say. Oh, good to know. Good. <laughs> So just as we start to wrap up, one thing that I actually can't believe we haven't said, and I'm just going to say it because I'm sure we'll come back to it, is the Nolan Principles, the the seven guiding principles of public life established by the Committee on Standards in Public Life in the mid-90s, was it 95, I think, um, which gives a framework through which public servants, anyone who has any form of public office is supposed to live their life. And those are you know, selflessness, integrity, objectivity, accountability openness, honesty, and leadership. And I actually wonder whether that provides a framework through which we could start to have a think about some of the other um, representations of public services. And, you know, certainly I think we could do a whole other episode on um, the Nolan principles uh, in line of duty. But what, what do people think? I think it's something we should have, we at least need to name check, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Good idea for, for the next one, Russ. Definitely. Yes, and I've seen people making that um, comparison between um, not only what um, some of our elected leaders are currently doing at the moment in regard to the Nolan principles and how they are not living up to those, but I, I've seen that brought up with regard to um, line of duty as well. So I think that's something that you could certainly discuss um, with um, considerable relevance to things that are going on at the moment. Definitely, you know, particularly when we think about politicians that, you know, for the sake of anonymity, I shall only refer to as Boris Johnson. Right uh, on that kind of bombshell, <laughs> which I'm sure will get me sacked. And this is a personal view, not a view held by MMU or any of the other organisations with which I'm affiliated. Right, uh, just to say, you know, thank you everyone for a fantastic conversation. Very, very quick final thoughts, um, each person. So, Karen, let's go to you. Really hoping there's going to be another series with so many questions. And after initially feeling a little bit underwhelmed, I'm now wanting to go back and watch the whole series again. Ian? Uh, I'm going to finish off with another Hastings quote, one of my favourites from this series. God give me strength, a bare-faced liar promoted to our highest office. Here, here. Uh, and Joe. Uh, it's been um, such a pleasure to watch just as a piece of drama, but in the way I think that it's allowed for this exploration of lots of different views of the police, what they should be doing, what they are doing, public services, and it allows for lots of different perspectives to be taken into account there. So that's that's been a really enjoyable thing in terms of something to watch, but it's nice to be able to, to see how we could bring that into some of our academic thinking as well. So I really hope that um, there is another series um, and that we can see an urgent exit required for some of our least favoured <laughs> characters in the line of duty universe. 
spin-offs. Um, and I suppose I'll wrap up by saying there's, I think, a relatively early episode of The Simpsons. It's the one with the giant head. I forget what it's actually called. And at the very end of it, the, the, the Simpsons, they sort of take in turns to say, well, I think the moral is this. And then someone says, no, because that didn't happen because I didn't get punished for that. Or maybe the moral is that. And they go through a couple. And then one of them says, well, what is the moral? And someone said, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's just a load of stuff that happened. And I think Line of Duty, that's a very kind of nihilistic way of looking at this. And, and Line of Duty doesn't have to tell us how we should behave or act, but it does provide a fascinating sort of lens through which we can explore public service and what it means to each of us. And, that, and that's been a real pleasure for me as well. Right. Well, just remains for me to say, you know, thank you very much to Karen, Ian and Joe for your um, contributions. It's been a fantastic conversation and we will definitely do this again. So uh, goodbye and thank you for listening to Public Service Podcasting. You've been listening to Public Service Podcasting with Russ Glennon, Ian Elliott and Karen Bottom.